chapter three. We're just going to keep going in Mark here. Last two, well, not last week, but two weeks ago, we on Easter Sunday we went through verse 19. So this morning we'll begin in Mark chapter three, verse 20, and I'll read through the end of the chapter. It says, "Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat." And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter... But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. There's a lot in that text. A lot of times you, if I, sometimes I'll just look up how famous preachers have preached through a portion of scripture. And a lot of times they'll break this into two or three sermons. But the, this unit all holds together. And the central theme is family. You can see this by observing the structure of the passage In verses 20 to 35, we have what, uh, at at the beginning and end of 20 and 35, we have what biblical scholars in technical terms call a sandwich. In verses 20 and 21, Andy's scowling, but that really is the term. That really is the term, sandwich. (laughs) She was up all night. Verses 20 and 21, we've got a reference to Jesus' family. And then down at the end, verses 31 to 35, we also have a reference to Jesus' family. And so that structural cue, in narrative, how a passage is structured can help you understand what's going on in between, what's the message in between. And and so that's what we see here. In verse 20, we read that Jesus is at home. It says, then he went home. Now, given that his family is going out to him to, to find him, he's probably not in Nazareth. Rather, we should probably imagine that he's back in Capernaum, where he's been ministering from. He set up a sort of home base in Capernaum. He might possibly have had a home there, but more likely, I think he's just operating out of Simon and Andrew's home. It's his adopted home there in Capernaum. Uh, and that's where he was operating in his, his ministry out of in chapters 1 and 2. So it's probably the same thing here in chapter 3. But whatever house he was in, he's back, and he's once again the toast of the town. Everybody is pressing in. Everybody wants to get close to Jesus. Everybody wants to see Jesus. And and the house is so packed. There's so many people in the crowd that it says they couldn't even eat. And, and I'm as I was reading that, I'm thinking, okay, we're still in a society that 
that does open fire cooking. You pro Not only could you not eat, you probably couldn't even cook dinner. If everybody's packed in tight, it's probably not a great time to light up a fire. How would you expect, if you were in Jesus' family, to, to feel? How, how would you respond to this kind of swelling popularity that we've seen over the first three chapters of Mark? Do you imagine, like, joy, excitement, maybe even deciding for yourself to worship him as you see the miraculous things that he's said and done? That's, that's not what we see Jesus' family doing here. It seems instead that they're concerned for his sanity, that they set out to stage some sort of an intervention. Verse 21 says, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Uh, it's worth, just like as a side note here, I pointed this out on Good Friday. But the Mary we see in the Gospels, including here, as she's coming to intervene in Jesus' ministry, the Mary we find in the Gospels is a good woman. She's a woman who trusts in the Lord. She's someone we should admire and in many ways emulate, but she is far from perfect. Here she doesn't see who Jesus truly is, and she needs the salvation that Jesus offers just the same as you and I do. Verse 22, we read that the crowd, among those of in the crowd who are pressing in to see Jesus, to be close to Jesus, are scribes, scribes who came down from Jerusalem, and they've come to investigate who this Jesus character is. It's similar to in John chapter 1, when the, the ministry of John the Baptist is taking off in popularity, the leaders in Jerusalem send, they send chief, or they send priests and Levites out to investigate and interrogate John the Baptist. And here, it's not it's not priests that are sent out, but rather scribes. They're experts in the law, and they're going to examine Jesus rather than John. At least they think that they're going to examine Jesus. He's going to flip the interrogation on its head. What is, what is their verdict? What do they think about Jesus? Verse 22 tells us. They say, he is possessed by Beelzebul, Lord of the Flies. Or, by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. Those are some pretty staggering accusations when you think about it. They, they look at Jesus' power. They can't deny his power. They can't say, well, the demons didn't really come out of that demon-possessed person, or that sick man wasn't really healed. They can't, they can't say that. What Jesus is doing is obvious and clear for everybody to see. He has genuine power, but what they question is the source. Where is the power coming from? Surely, this man cannot have godly power. Why? He casts out demons on the Sabbath day. He must be in league with the devil. And Jesus' response is really straightforward. He questions their logic, and he gives them parables to show how stupid they're being. The first parable is really straightforward. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Now, in America, that line is probably most famous because Abraham Lincoln quoted it, and he used it as a warning to our nation, right? A house divided against itself cannot stand. But Jesus isn't using it in this circumstance as a warning. He's using it as, as in a sense, a vindication of who he is and where his power is coming from. 
Do the scribes really think that Satan is so incompetent as to divide against himself and fight against himself? Imagine an exterminator whose job is to make a living by getting rid of termites. And and then there's a big write-up, a big expose in the newspaper. Uh, that's kind of an old illustration, a newspaper uh, online somewhere about how this guy really is, he's not actually an exterminator. He's a supervillain in league with all of the termites. And we see this because he kills termites. Like, this doesn't make any sense. And that's exactly what these guys are accusing Jesus of. He's He must have Satan's power, and he shows that by removing Satan's power over people's lives. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. It's illogical. Jesus says, if Satan has risen up against himself, verse 26, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. Jesus is obviously not in league with Satan because he's in the process of undoing Satan's work. Which leads to the second parable, verse 27. Jesus says, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then he may indeed plunder his house. So in that story, who is the strong man and who is the plunderer? I just want to read some verses from throughout the New Testament that that help us see that in Scripture, Satan is pictured as a strong man. Paul writes in Ephesians 2.2 that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. That sounds like a pretty strong title. In Ephesians 6.12, Paul writes of the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the chief of which would be Satan himself. Jesus, speaking in John chapter 12, verse 31, calls Satan the ruler of this world. And again, Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.4 refers to Satan as the god of this world. I'm reading a lot of C.S. Lewis right now. I'm giving a talk on C.S. Lewis next month, so I've just been reading a lot of C.S. Lewis. And Lewis is interesting because of his embrace of what's been called a a medieval cosmology. (laughs) He didn't necessarily believe that this was true in like a scientific sense, but he thought it was it was helpful and taught us some true things about the world. And, and the medievals and their understanding of the universe, they, they believed that, they're, that out there, they wouldn't have used the term space, but in what we would call space, there weren't just rocks spinning around other rocks and balls of gas, which emitted heat. That's, that's not all that's going on in their mind. Rather, they would have thought that governing these places were personal powers, angels or demons who were responsible for them. And, and Lewis saw that as instructive for how we think about our world. If you read his, his Ransom trilogy, he, he spends a lot of time talking about this. It, it's fiction, but one advantage that this perception of the world, that seeing that, that there's not just the physical things that we can measure in our modern scientific age, but that there are unseen spiritual powers. One of the advantages that seeing the world that way gave the people of the Middle Ages, of the Middle medieval times, was that they could understand what was going on in the Bible a lot better. They, they had an understanding of the world that was suffused with the supernatural. The, the idea of governing spirits isn't simply from the Dark Ages of Europe, but it's heavily present in several biblical passages, uh, 
a text like Daniel chapter 10, it totally hangs on this idea that there are spirits, good or evil, angelic or demonic, that are over particular places. And I think what we see in the words of Jesus and Paul is that Satan is such a governing spirit and he has governance over this world. He was given power over this world. But we know that he didn't use that power to honor and glorify God the way he was meant to. Rather, he sought to magnify himself, to procure the worship of humanity, not for God, but for himself. And so instead of ministering to Adam and Eve as he would have been meant to do, he personifies himself as a serpent and tempts Eve to disobey the creator. And he thinks he's successful. In some sense, he he very much is successful. But God immediately interjects into the story in Genesis chapter 3, and he gives a curse to the serpent that the seed of the woman, someone coming from the woman, would crush his head. He He would bruise the heel of that seed of the woman. But one day, the seed of the woman would bring an end to the power of the tempter, of the snake. And so we see Jesus come on the scene in Mark's gospel. And from the first chapter, we read of Jesus' healing power, and he heals demoniac after demoniac. Every person that seems that has a demon that comes in contact with Jesus is freed from Satan's power in their life. They are freed from Satan's power and influence. Jesus, in a real sense, is plundering Satan's house. He's, he's stealing Satan's stuff, right? <laughs> the God of this world can't hold on to his stuff anymore. He can't maintain his prisoner population called humanity, which means one thing in Jesus' parable here. Jesus has bound the strong man. He's tied him up. He's taken away his power. And the picture we're given in scripture is of Satan, in a sense, being allowed to run roughshod over the world for millennia. Think about the days of Noah. After the fall being expelled from Eden, humanity quickly plunges into murder, violence of all kinds, polygamy, and and all manner of drunken debauchery. And it's so bad that only six chapters into the story, God wipes the slate clean. He kills everybody except for Noah and his family. That's a pretty bad state for the world to be in if God says, reset. I smashed that finger and I just pointed with it. That was a bad idea. (laughs) Even after this point, even after Genesis chapter 6, God begins to work with just one family, the family of a moon worshiper from the land of Ur named Abram. And even as this family grows and and God works deliverance after deliverance for them, we find that God's chosen people, this one people in the midst of a wide world that's still under Satan's power and influence, this family still ends up preferring to do what the nations around them do, participating in child sacrifice, adultery at the, the temples of these foreign gods, all kinds of just wicked, nasty practices, things that... Even unbelievers in our day, we would look back and we would say, what is wrong with those people? They'd rather do that rather than worship and serve Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it seems that in the time before Christ, Satan just has this massive sway over the whole world. But all of that began to change when God the Son took on flesh and dwelt among us. When when Satan's domain was here, Jesus invaded it. 
and he bound Satan. It's part of why Mark shares so many of Jesus' miracles of deliverance, because he wants us to understand that Jesus' power to save is greater than Satan's power to bind and to oppress. Now, does that mean that Satan's not still active in this world? Was, was Luther right or wrong to write in a mighty fortress is our God that this world is with devils filled? Of course he was right. Satan no longer has the power he once did, but he's still prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But the difference between before Christ and after Christ is now he's a lion with no fangs. He wants to bully us. He's roaring because he wants us to cower in his presence. He wants to maul us. But brothers and sisters, if you resist the devil, James 4, 7 says, he will flee from you. We don't have to attack him for him to flee. We just have to resist his attacks and he runs away. Does that speak to his great power over us? No. It says that the spirit that is in us is greater than he who is in the world. As first John says, you resist him, you resist his roaring. You'll feel his onslaught. Revelation 12 pictures Satan cast down from heaven, which I believe is what Jesus was talking about. In John chapter 12, verse 31, he says, I saw the God of this world fall. And as one theologian puts, puts it, referring to that passage in Revelation 12, He's mad as hell, right? All hell has broken loose as he's trying to scare the world. But he's so mad because he no longer has the power he once did. He knows his days are numbered. And he knows this, ironically, because he did accidentally fight against himself. That's what happened on the cross. Satan entered Judas, the scriptures tell us, and Judas betrayed Jesus into the hands of the chief priests Jesus was crucified then under Pontius Pilate, but there on the cross, he wasn't ended. He bore the weight of all of our sins, and in doing so, he removed the greatest power that Satan possessed, the power to accuse us rightly before the throne of God. That was Satan's greatest power. But now, Satan no longer stands before the throne with the power to accuse. Christ stands before the throne pleading our case, a case not based on our goodness, but on his blood. The strong man has been bound and the source of his power has been destroyed. So we just spent this last week in Morton, uh, Illinois, for, for our HMA Small Town Pastors Conference. And the theme of the conference was hopeful ministry in a despairing world. And nobody talked about this text, but I, as I was thinking about preaching it, I'm thinking about all the themes in relation to one another, right? And I, I desperately needed that message of hopeful ministry in a despairing world. As I was convicted, as I listened to that, of it's kind of, it's been a realization that's been building in my mind for the last couple months through some conversations and uh, reading and then now just like listening to these sermons. But it, it kind of crystallized around this. I, I realized I've been incredibly hopeless in ministry. And, and so I, I need to apologize to you and ask for your forgiveness on that because that affects how, not just how I feel, but that affects how I try to lead our church and how I think about the future of our congregation and ministry here. <laughs> Hopelessness is looking at the world without taking God into account. And that, that's wrong. 
Remsen, Iowa is a place where, honestly, I feel a pretty strong presence of Satan <laughs> doing a lot of work here still. But for me to have hopelessness, to have low expectations for what God is going to do, is, is a faithless attempt at protecting myself from the disappointment of, of failure. It's a form of fear, and it dishonors God. Because whatever Satan's, whatever grip Satan does have on people's lives pales in comparison to the power of God given for salvation, the power of Jesus Christ crucified, risen, and ascended for sinners who has bound the strong man. Jesus has more power than Satan. His gospel light is bright enough to light up any dark place. And Jesus is the Lord of heaven, earth, and right here in this place. Do you believe that? One of my goals for this coming year is to think through ministry based in and propelled by hope. Not not hope in like the ethereal, meaningless sense that our society uses hope. And last week, Earl talked about what the world says about love and what God's word says about love. And that hope is another one of those words. Our society has one definition for hope and the scriptures have another definition for hope. The true and solid hope of scripture is built on the fact of a savior who is powerful enough to bind Satan, pay for sin, and walk out of the tomb. That that doesn't mean, again, that hardship doesn't face us or we won't face hard times, but it does mean that we can persevere through those times, believing that God is doing something far greater than we could ask or think. So, so um, my goal is to think and pray that way, with that kind of hope, and I would ask you to do the same thing. Our hope is built on a sure foundation, the finished work of Jesus. But back to our theme in the text of family, how can we know that we're on Jesus's side and not on the side of the one who has been bound, Satan himself? How do you know which side you're on? Jesus issues a warning in verses 28 through 30, a warning which has sent chills down the spine of Bible readers ever since Mark penned these words almost 2,000 years ago. Verses 28 through 30 say this, Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. What is this eternal sin? How do you know if you've committed it? One often made observation, but it's important to say it out loud nonetheless, is that if you're worried about committing the unforgivable sin, you almost certainly have not committed the unforgivable <laughs> sin. But you don't, like that statement in and of itself actually isn't very comforting, but like, how How do you know that? How do you know that's true? First, we need to see who Jesus is speaking to. He's speaking to the scribes. He's not just speaking to Joe Schmo person randomly selected and saying, hey, Pay attention to this potential for an eternal sin. He's speaking to the religious elite, the people who knew God's word. They knew the law forwards and backwards. In other words, they should have been the first to correctly identify God's son, at least to have identified him as the promised Messiah, if not God's son himself. Second, we have to see what they're doing that Jesus is warning them about. They are attributing the clear and obvious work of God not to God, and then giving him glory, but instead they're attributing it to Satan. As Paul writes in Romans 1, though they knew God, they did not honor him as God, but their foolish hearts were darkened. 
Is God willing to forgive blasphemy? I mean, that's that's blasphemous speech. And is God willing to forgive that? Well, Paul would answer that question with a resounding yes. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, Paul writes this. He's speaking from his own testimony here. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though I formerly was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. So that's how Paul described himself. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, Paul says, yes, Jesus is happy to forgive not just some sins, but the worst sins. I was the foremost of sinners. I was a blasphemer and a persecutor, and God wanted to show the abundance of his riches by saving me, by forgiving me. So there's no one who's done something so bad God won't forgive them. But notice the condition of Paul's receipt of this mercy. It says he acted in ignorance. There's a sense in which all sin is ignorance, right? If we really knew deep down in our bones who God was and what he expected, we would be, the nicest thing we could say about sin at that point is that it's ignorant. But what Paul seems to be driving at and what makes sense of Jesus' statement here is that you can hate God, you can hate Christianity, you can hate Jesus, and God is more than happy to forgive that if you will repent and turn to him in faith. Repent of your hatred and bow the knee to Jesus. It's really that simple. That's all there is to it. However, there is a type of sin which hardens you to the truth, which will deaden the conviction that the Spirit gives and will make it such that you will not repent. And if you will not repent, you will not be forgiven. A prime example of this in Scripture is Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh hardens his heart. And though Moses has clearly used, he's being used as God's instrument to bring judgment on the people of Egypt. And he says, here's what God's going to do. And then it happens. And over and over. And Pharaoh will for a time say, oh yeah, I'll respond. But then he changes his mind. He hardens his heart over and over again. And and that hardness of heart is what makes Pharaoh unforgivable. Because that hardness means he won't repent of his sin. This, the sin itself is not intrinsically unforgivable. It's, it's not unable to be forgiven. But the sin of looking at the work of God's spirit and deliberately spitting on it, blaspheming the Holy Spirit, will shut off your heart, will harden your heart to where you won't turn to Christ. And if you won't turn to Christ, you can't be forgiven. So there's the eternal consequences of this sin. I think that's what Jesus is saying, is that this sin of refusing to acknowledge the work of the Spirit, it it will shut you off to the only way to get forgiveness, repentance, and, and humbly bowing before him. This is exactly what the author of Hebrews writes about in Hebrews 10, 23 to 31, where he writes, Let us hold fast to our confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 
Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine and I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Who's falling into the hands of the living God in that Hebrews 10 passage? It's those who have an understanding of the truth. They're not walking in ignorance. They know the truth. They've heard the gospel, understood the gospel. They may even claim to believe it. And yet they refuse to live a life of repentance from sin. They're in the habit of neglecting church. They don't get together with their brothers and sisters to encourage them how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. That's what verses 23 to 25 talked about. It, essentially what, what the author to the Hebrews is saying is that if we try to follow Christ on our own without the encouragement of others to help us see how we need to repent of our sin, we're in se- essentially putting ourselves in the position of giving up to Satan. claiming to be God's child and refusing to enter his house, not like a physical space, his house, but the spiritual house of his people, it is like being a, claiming to be someone's child, but refusing to be in their presence. If you've trusted in Jesus, he's made you part of his family and our souls depend on living as if that's true, living like a child of the king. As we come to the conclusion of our passage, we find Jesus' family is still trying to get to him. And I imagine both the messengers and the family were shocked by Jesus' response to their request. Verse 31 of Mark chapter 3. His mother and his brothers came, standing outside. They sent to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered, Who are my brother and my brothers? And looking to those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So who does Jesus identify as his true family? Those who do his will. And what is his will? First of all, John chapter 6 tells us that the will of God, the will of Christ, the Son of God, is to trust in the Son who was sent into the world, to believe in Jesus. That's fundamentally the most important part of God's will for you, that you would repent of your sins and trust in Jesus to save you. And then, having done that, we join with our brothers and sisters in the church, as we read in Hebrews 10, learning to, as Jesus says in Matthew 28, learn to obey everything that he has commanded. And that might sound daunting. (laughs) And alone, it surely would be. It would be impossible There's a lot of one another commands that are impossible by yourself. But together, together we can imperfectly but increasingly grow in conformity to Christ, shining as lights in the world, Philippians 2.15. 
So the question for us as we read this passage is, what family are you in? Are you in the family of the strong man who's been bound and tied up and gagged in his house? Or are you in the family of the invading king, the conquering king? Are you going to line up with the scribes and accuse Jesus of being false? Are you going to line up against his church, see the good work he's doing and drawing people to himself and conforming them, growing them in conformity to him? Or are you going to throw rocks from the sidelines? Are you going to cower in fear that Jesus can't actually make a dent here in Remsen or anywhere else? Or are you going to trust Christ, not just for your eternal salvation, but for the good work he wants to do in and through you in this life, in and through us as a church here and now and in the future? Will you, will you trust that? As the Apostle Paul was told by God himself, he has many people in this city. Will you trust that he has gifted you to help build up and encourage this body of believers. In short, in response to to Mark 3, our duty is this, to live like a true brother and sister of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father God, we we so need your help. We, We can't become members of your family apart from the work of the Spirit, opening our eyes to behold who Jesus is and enabling us to trust him. But if we have trusted in him, he has given us the right, John 1.12 says, to become children of God. And so, Lord, if we have trusted in Christ, if there's any here who haven't, open their eyes, we, we pray. And if for those of us who know you, would you help us to just remember who we are? We are part of the family of the king. Help us to live with that kind of hope and joy that suffuses, that that deeply penetrates our life, no matter what is going on around us, to know that we are yours and you are ours. What a gracious and amazing gift. Help us to honor you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.